And we are back with the Week in IndyCar listener Q&A here on the Marshall Pro Podcast. Brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, and TorontoMotorsports.com. Just spent about 45 minutes on the phone with friend of the show and dear friend William Theodore Ribs uh, talking about his dad, talking about Joey Ray, and yeah, talking about all kinds of other stuff that, uh, whew, boy, it's always fun catching up with my man, Mr. Ribs. Another conversation that we had recently that would have be what last wednesday something like that uh speaking to you on a monday night at 7 11 p.m uh spent nearly four hours on the phone with an old friend who's now a new ntt indycar series entrant that being the all kinds of awesome beth peretta so i'm going to take that my racing life and career conversation it wasn't four hours long spent about an hour catching up on all things, solving all the world's problems, as we are wont to do before we started recording. And then when we were done, I don't know, added another almost an hour, whatever it was. Uh, Great time with Beth. Definitely going to have to break the interview portion, learning about her and her life into two parts, because a two-plus-hour podcast is a little bit much these days. And... Wow. I've uh, known Beth fairly well for a while. We get into some things that I present as options to talk about, and she went into compared to declining. And yeah, wow. I really do look forward to getting that episode out for you. There's two or three times where tears were involved. Uh, Might have been the two of us at the same time. Might have been some others where you might not have heard me tearing up, but yeah, some powerful stuff, insightful stuff. She is, yeah, that woman is amazing. So got that coming, and what else? Got a couple other things been just waiting to push out, which I will hear shortly on the good old podcast. And last little note before we get rolling with your questions, going to be heading down to WeatherTech Waceway. Sure. Oh, man, the garbage is already floating to the top here in this episode, and it's all my fault. WeatherTech Raceway Laguna Seca. Going to wander down there tomorrow, Tuesday. Uh, As it turns out, it's just going to be the Ganassi team. Not that that's a bad thing. Just wish there'd be more teams there. Uh, But still going to wander down. Dario and I have been talking about doing a feature series for a little bit, so we're going to try and get that started tomorrow when he is not busy and then i don't know maybe spend about a half day and then head back and do some other things so yeah we'll see what we find out there um hopefully some interesting observations and if not well worst case scenario i will have pretty much the entire facility to myself to climb around and whether i want to take some of them photographs shoot a couple videos or just be in and among nature and hearing and seeing indie cars <sighs> no arguments there friends all right let's get a little bit of music bed going got about a tenth of a cup of coffee left um it's not totally cold so that's good but that's going to be my companion for this episode instead of beer so it is going to be a trio of questions including ones from our pal jason hoover Damien, the IndyCar Brit, 
and Harishi Deshpande, all on the topic of engines and manufacturers. I think this might be pivoting off of the recent news that Ferrari will not indeed be joining IndyCar as its third IndyCar manufacturer when the 2023 hybrid formula comes into existence. I know it's like I should go pour out a 40 of beer. So many, everybody thought Ferrari was going to join in, right? 100%. No dissent from anyone. Every single, sorry, being a little sarcastic here. Uh, yeah, so the thing that I said was never going to happen and a trillion other people said was never going to happen, never happened. So not a shock, but to me, that's not the news. It's we're still at two with Chevrolet and Honda. Thank you, Chevrolet and Honda. Seriously, whatever you can do, friends, uh, whether you love one brand more than the other, I would just say treat the two of them like the most precious life-giving forces we have in IndyCar. Because if one of them chose to not play and left this to one manufacturer to supply, that manufacturer would certainly supply, whomever it would be, but money to market and promote and do a lot of things, the series, oh boy, would be really, really rough. So just saying up front before I get to your questions, little public service announcement, any opportunity you get, to say thank you to the bow tie, thank you to Honda. Uh, please do not pass up those opportunities. They just need to always know that we appreciate them because if they go away, we are not going to be happy people. Jason, you open the show. Says with Ferrari basically saying, ah, thanks, but no thanks to coming to IndyCar as a third manufacturer. Who do you see as joining the series when the new regulations come out? Yeah. Um, here's my concern, Jason, and it's not one that I'm expressing for the first time, but it is just only growing in light of the Ferrari news that we weren't surprised by, but it just reaffirmed we sure having a hard time getting a third manufacturer, aren't we? We have Chevrolet and Honda both in their own unique ways saying, uh, hey, Third, whoever you are, we are all about you. We want you here. You being an IndyCar makes our lives better. Better how? Money. Save money. Instead of a full-time 23, 24-ish car grid at a number of races, we'll have 25, maybe 26 outside the Indy 500 Again, you look at who who's supplying what at those events, but just in a theoretical world, call it more or less even, 12 and 12, 13 and 13, whatever the number is. Hey, if all of a sudden it's 8, 8, and 8, uh, maybe one or two up or down, on, but nonetheless saving you know a number of leases per year because there's a third for it to be a three-way share, that would be huge to Chevy and Honda in terms of budget savings. And this is the thing. That's the reason the voice and volume and, and strength behind come on someone 
If you need the help getting up to speed, if you've never done this kind of stuff before, if you've only ever done sports cars and are clueless about open wheel and big super speedway, whatever. Hey, if we can help get you up to speed, we will. Not going to help you beat us, but we're here for you to be the third and therefore allow us to not have to bear so much weight and responsibility. Uh, I am struggling, Jason, to see who that third might be. Maybe this is a should be a subject for an article. I don't know. Probably. If I was good, I would have written it months ago. We have this unique thing where IMSA has announced in the same year, 2023, that IndyCar is coming out with their hybrid formula. Well, guess what? They're going to have a hybrid formula. For those who are relatively new listeners to the show, should have mentioned before diving into the Q&A, we often pick one or two topics to do a little bit of a deeper dive on up front and then start moving into the quicker, shorter, singular questions. So uh, that's why we're going to visit here for just a little bit to open. Um, Jason, I wonder how much we're going to look back in five years and say, hey, remember how we were thinking that IndyCar's new hybrid formula would be pretty darn attractive to multiple manufacturers to come in for the first time or rejoin, but however you want to, however it gets quantified, hey, remember how there were two for almost a decade or just about a decade or longer than a decade? Well, now there's three or four. That's awesome, and there's clearly positive engagement and endorsement by additional manufacturers that they see value in what IndyCar is doing with their overall regulations and formula. But why did that not happen, which is my fear, that we're going to have Chevy and Honda come 2023 and nothing more. I wonder if IMSA's LMDH formula which is a replacement for the current DPI formula, non-hybrid. What's coming with LMDH is hybrid. Less adventurous hybrid package as well in terms of the electrification side, uh, less than half the horsepower of what IndyCar's kinetic energy recovery system will bring, but still spec on both sides, right? Manufacturers can't play with the... uh, software control side stuff it's a sealed system on both series but why have we seen three manufacturers commit to lmdh i am aware of two more that should be announcing in the coming months by le mans at the latest in june i've heard of a few others i won't get in waste your time here this is my indy car show not my sports car show but I could very well see, Jason, in the same year IndyCar is launching its new formula, that IMSA launching its new prototype formula could have six or more manufacturers. So why would one with the same kind of hybrid stuff, bigger TV ratings in IndyCar, more fans in IndyCar, things you would think would cause manufacturers saying, hybrid over here, hybrid over there. Which one am I going to go with? Well, it'd be the one with the bigger ratings and the bigger fan base and the more crowd-filled arenas. And yet, 
the numbers could be a ratio of three to one, I think, if I have my ratios correct. There could be as many as six to two. Uh, why? So I wonder, I wonder, 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 Jason, if IMSA and its formula, which allows more individuality, you can do custom body work on these LMDHs that use more road car styling cues. The engine can be within limits, kind of, sort of, what you want to bring. And there are some real limits as to how big it could be, how long it could be. There are some things which would keep manufacturers from trying some crazy motor that, frankly, I don't think anybody would really try and do because they'd be too big and too uh, negative in terms of affecting the handling. But in one side, with a spec hybrid system that, again, 40 horsepower, I mean, it's, it's not much. It's really, truly not much. But in other areas of the car, a lot of individuality is offered. Big response. In IndyCar, where the only place we know of right now where anything kind of individual would be allowed is the engine. But even then, going to be pretty tight. No, you can't bring a four-cylinder or an eight-cylinder or a five. It has to be exactly 2.4 liters. Exactly six cylinders in a V, not in line, but in a V, and two turbos. We're not seeing right now manufacturers saying, yep, that's us. So the the bigger question I'm raising here, which I pitched today as a cover feature for not the next issue of Racer, but the following one, is how do how do we solve this? How does IndyCar solve this? And I spoke about it in last week's, I think, episode first, listener Q&A episode, Ed Joris's topic and rant a little bit about opening other areas of tech, things I've mentioned before I have preached behind the scenes to IndyCar countless times, but really have got no traction on. We'll see. Maybe we're just going to write about a future that we'd like to see. And whether IndyCar reads it or not, embraces it or not, up to them, immaterial, but we're going to maybe explore that in all the ways where a current road car, possibly something many of you drive on a daily basis, contains higher and more recent technology than almost anything found within an IndyCar. Crazy thought, right? I don't know what a Nissan, a new Nissan Sentra costs. 20 grand, 25 grand, whatever the number is, it has more modern features within it than anything you'll find in an IndyCar. The only exception could be within the engine and some very specialized things being done. But for the most part, from nose to tail, your daily driver, provided it was made in the last five or 10 years, is very likely outer space technology compared to anything found on an IndyCar. If we would then just extrapolate that a little bit further to close this question you've opened for us here, Jason. If we extrapolate that a little bit further, if there's really only one area that a manufacturer 
could dive into in the future, and that being a hybrid power plant where the electric side isn't theirs, they can't touch it, it's totally spec, and all they can really contribute is just an internal combustion engine. And most of the cars that are sold today or have been sold recently are laden with things that are so far beyond anything else you would find on any car in terms of advancement and modernity. Maybe that's a reason why those who haven't been in the series for the last 10, 12, 15 years are struggling to find a reason to come in. So not trying to paint things in a unnecessarily negative direction, Jason, but I'm worried Porsche had an interest, but ultimately said, no, they, what year, two years later, whatever number of years later said, we're going to do LMDH, uh, Ferrari. I think they had an interest in talking about it. I don't think they had a real interest in doing it. You know what they're going to be doing? Not formally announced, but I know that it's happening behind the scenes. They're going to do the European version of an LMDH. They're going to do a Le Mans hypercar. What is it? It's a prototype with a lot of areas of technological freedom. When you've got options and multiple manufacturers say we're going where we can have more freedom and play, and express ourselves Ah, it's worrying damien the indycar brit hey marshall penske corporation president bud denker said last week that indycar has quote some unique ways to help a potential third manufacturer do you know what he could be referring to funny you should ask damien uh i am forgetting who i was speaking with on this topic today but was indeed speaking with someone about this today from IndyCar within the IndyCar paddock. And the best I could come up with is this. Bud said some unique ways they could help and then followed that by saying, and I'm not going to go into those ways. So he did not actually express that off the record or otherwise. I couldn't tell you uh, if he had said it off the record, but I'm just sharing that he really didn't paint any extra information into this for me to offer you but would say that knowing that roger penske is co-owner of ilmore engineering knowing that they have pretty deep ties within the industry to expedite things uh would say that you know uh, ilmore ilmore services multiple clients some of them publicly known some of them not uh some of them very private my interpretation of this was if someone wanted to get in and it's a little bit later than optimal, uh, we can probably assist in ramping something up. Uh, we can probably help with getting a design going if that's what's needed. Bearing in mind, obviously, some manufacturers, uh, Honda, for example, has their own racing division here. American Honda has Honda performance development It's based in California. All they do is racing. They make more or less everything in house. We're talking about the IndyCar stuff, right? They it's pretty much a one-stop shop for all they need to do from the folks drawing the very first line of whatever new motor to cutting the metal 
to assembling it, dynoing it, and getting it ready for competition. You then have other manufacturers who are great at selling cars and work in racing or have some presence in racing, but it's not really deep, and they don't have their own competition arm. They often farm such things out. I would think that in this scenario, Damien, that's what Bud's talking to. If it's a brand that says, all right, well, we want to do it, but we don't exactly have our version of an HPD to turn the key and spit out, you know, 30 motors in the next nine months. That's where I'm guessing Bud is referring to unique ways to help. If we're looking at some other companies that do similar things, there's certainly more than Elmore, right, that could be hired to help. I don't know if that's what Bud was thinking about as well. I don't know if there's any thought of financial assistance. Could there be something there as well? I don't know. Again, I don't know. But the number one thing that came to mind was, hey, we kind of know a company that makes championship winning Indy 500 IndyCar engines and more. Uh, much like we have in on the chassis side in sports car racing, the LMDHs I was just talking about. I know of a few of the chassis manufacturers who will be representing multiple manufacturers, building a car for this brand, then building a car for another brand. And you go, well, wait a minute. Isn't there going to be some, you know, intellectual property crossover? I would say no, but nonetheless, the idea of an Ilmore potentially helping a brand to at least get up and running or whatever it might be, wouldn't strike me as any kind of conflict of interest provided there's a there isn't a non-compete clause that they've signed with Chevy for example. Uh Harishi, you're going to close this grand opening topic as I take a sip of coffee. Questions regarding both Ferrari and Ed Joris's rant from last week, which I just referenced a moment ago. At what point does IndyCar's current manufacturer dependence become untenable and what happens then? Says so at some point manufacturers priorities and IndyCar's are going to diverge with no point of return. Says, I think we're already seeing this happen to some extent with the current lack of additional manufacturer interest. What happens if the current system no longer works for manufacturers? Says, does the house of cards collapse? Do we go back to privateer engine builders? Over to you, MP. And Hrishi knows. Uh, I won't share it because he didn't include it here. It's something you can, if you want to learn a little more about Hrishi, it's something readily available on his social media, but Rishi does indeed know what he's talking about in terms of auto manufacturers. Here's my general thought over to UMP type passing of the mic, Rishi. And I have put a little bit of extra thought into this in recent days while trying to fashion this uh, racer feature, racer magazine feature. And it is, if we take General Motors as the key example, saying, within the next 15 years, we're going to get to a place where we no longer make vehicles with internal combustion engines. That's what I interpret your mention of the diverging uh, points. Hey, we're going to get to a place here. You know, what is that? 20, whatever it is, middle of the 2030s, where in theory, uh, one of the two major brands involved in IndyCar today won't be trying to promote uh fuel and air compressed 
power generating spark triggered horsepower. What do you do? Well, got to admit, I think there could be a bit of a, a salvation here up to that point, say the mid 2030s point here, Hrishi. And that is right now we know what IndyCar has in mind starting in 2023 is a total horsepower output of approximately 900. That would be 80 to 100 electronic horsepower, electronic, electric horsepower from the kinetic energy recovery system, the push to pass, hit that button, you get roughly 100 electric ponies sent to the rear axle combined with approximately 800 internal combustion engine horsey powers. If IndyCar wants to stay relevant, you mentioned here manufacturer dependence and things, again, possibly diverging, moving towards a greater EV electronic, Jesus, why do I keep saying that? Electric vehicle world, less reliance on internal combustion engine, more reliance on battery-based or similar-based, but non-combustion, internal combustion engine power reliance. If IndyCar wants to remain relevant to manufacturers, I would say they need to spend a lot of time right now, this minute, before they've even announced who their first Kurs manufacturer will be. They need to start thinking, Hrishi, about how do we write the rules as something that we can quickly and constantly adapt if necessary to tip that power production percentage. Sorry for all the P's there. Farther away from the internal combustion side and more to the electric side. So could we see a point where the vast majority of power being put to the ground is done through electric systems. Not a hundred percent because I think we do start to lose a fan base, uh, some fan base. I can't tell you what percentage, but I wonder if IndyCar were to take an approach that says over the next five, 10, 15 years, we need to position ourselves to be adaptable and adjustable so that if Chevy, Honda, and who knows, good Lord willing, third or fourth manufacturer comes to us and says, hey, so we signed up for this five-year engine formula starting in 23. Great. We're halfway through it right now. Man, our marketing goals and needs sure have changed. And the rate of EV takeover is faster than anyone predicted. And you know what? The electric side of this in what we compete with with you boy that's the small number how do we get that bigger because that's how we keep our ongoing participation in indycar good that's how we get the people who give us the money to do this at our company that's how we keep them happy because this series is no longer seen as not fitting our marketing needs but actually adjusting and adapting with them And hey, the marketplace and buyers, we're trying to showcase more and more on the EV side. If not 100%, you know, maybe we still have hybrid vehicles, but 
boy, the E part is becoming a bigger selling point and is doing more in those vehicles than the internal combustion side. Can you work with us and help us so we can ramp up? And now, instead of 100 electric horsepower, it's two or three. Do we need to adjust the length of races? Do we? Who know? Again, I don't know all the mechanisms here, Krishi. It's a little messy, right? It's going to have to be a lot of like, all right, yeah, this isn't your same old, same old. This isn't the stuff that you were comfortable with even two, three years ago. There's changes coming. This is the thing to your exact point and your great point, Rishi, that IndyCar, which is betrothed to manufacturers to help pay for a lot of things, make it again. IndyCar doesn't work without manufacturers right now. You could, you could say, all right, we're going to go to Cosworth. They're going to make two point whatever liter motors and they're all spec and they all cost X amount. And there you go. That could happen. Do that. We could do that pretty quickly. Cosworth isn't putting any money into the series. Cosworth isn't taking over three to five events next year. The Chevrolet duel in Detroit, the Honda Indy Grand Prix, the Acura Grand Prix at Long Beach, the, 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 buying the TV time, buying the digital ads, buying the print for those who still read print and newspapers every day. Like, yeah, IndyCar right now is not in a position to say, ah, go ahead, take off. We've got it. We've got the millions upon millions upon millions to spend. Definitely not going to be a hit. It'd be a giant hit. So this, and I'm just going to close on this because I could probably go for another half hour on the topic. This Rishi is a concern of mine as well. Just as Jason's on the opening point of what do we think about a third? I can't see a third right now. I hope I'm wrong. This isn't one of those, I'm making a prediction and everyone listen to me, I'm smart. No, no, no. This is, I can't see how it happens, but the only thing I want is to be wrong. (laughs) Truly, tell me the prayer to say to make third, fourth, however many manufacturers happen. I'll say it, I will, trust me, this is all I want to happen. I just can't see it happening. But all I want to do is to be wrong. So there's that. This thing here, which has a little bit of a longer runway, Rishi, this is the other thing that concerns me. The automotive industry is going through a constant revolution right now, right? It hasn't finished. It doesn't even feel like it's really fully started. But we know, poor us in motor racing, where we just want things to be normal and reliable and come back year after year and get the thing that we love no questions about it changing or or going away the automotive industry of which we are reliant upon and need and cannot afford to disconnect from they're going through (laughs) this weird transitional awkward phase where even they don't know where they're going and the last thing indycar can do IMSA can do run down the lists of the series you love that rely on manufacturers. The last thing any of them can do is just tie themselves to uh, an old timey post and say, Nope, not changing said. We're going to do it for five years or seven years or however many years. And we're not changing. 
at the rate things are changing in the auto world, oh boy, I think that would be a failure in strategery. Let's move to a couple of questions. Rob Ball, Jameen Tuttle, how you doing, guys? Say, MP, is this the oldest rookie crop in IndyCar that you can remember? It is. And is it the one bringing the most accomplishments from other series? Well, hmm. We know that there's a certain James Johnson who isn't so bad and brings some accomplishments from some other series. Uh, Yes, he is certainly in the very much better than bad category. Uh, Jimmy is going to be joined by a certain Scott McLaughlin, our guest last week on the Weekend IndyCar guest show, funnily enough. Wasn't he a riot, by the way? Just the Bed Bath & Beyond and Bed Bath & Beyond. I mean, that guy, I'm serious. He is hilarious. Uh, And he kept texting me photos, by the way, of uh, his the puzzle, the Disney puzzle he was working on, and finally sent me one of it complete. So good on him. Uh, Scotty is, what, late 20s or so? For sure, and then Romain Grosjean will be turning, what, 35 on his debut weekend. So, yeah, I'd guess that, at least in my lifetime, this has to be among the oldest rookie crop. Only, is it a bummer, to use a very Californian word? Uh, You're new, 2021, NTT IndyCar Series, Rookie of the Year, award winner, Scott McLaughlin. Why? He's the only rookie doing all the races. So, granted, he could have a terrible year. Jimmy and or Romac could have a great year and theoretically out-earn him in the point standings, but that would probably be a little bit rich, uh, knowing that at least right now Jimmy and Romain are not planning on doing the Indy 500, which offers double points. But theoretically, one or two of them could beat him, but I think unlikely. So, definite older rookie crop for sure. Big I would say, use the word bummer yet again. Uh, no road to indie talent. This has got to be the first time, and I don't know how long, since we have not had a emerging indie lights champ coming up or someone who's been there, thereabouts in indie lights saying, okay, you know, uh, going to make it happen and didn't make it happen. Know the reasons why. No Indy Light season last year, but just strange to not have a young gun, young driver uh, representing the next generation coming up into IndyCar. Uh, Jameen says, how does IndyCar determine if a rookie is experienced enough to drive and is it determined by circuit? Says, thinking about Cody Ware possibly starting his open-wheel career at Texas. Yikes! Is there a system or is it totally case-by-case? I think it's case by case. Jamine, I know that Cody has a NASCAR-ish experience. You know, he's not, it's not like he's 30 years old and has a thousand starts under his belt. But yeah, I, I can only hope that he shows great aptitude in his oval rookie tests. I know that conversations have been held with some veteran drivers who have expressed concern about someone they do not know who has never driven one of these cars, has never driven anything 
like this uh, on a high-speed track like a Texas, a dangerous track like Texas. Not the track itself is dangerous, but at the speeds, you do something wrong, and there's potentially dangerous implications. Um, I have heard conversations have taken place with more than one driver, very serious drivers, saying, boy, uh, do we maybe think about starting somewhere else? Not like they have a vote, but the thing here, and this is not specific to Cody. This is just specific to someone who drivers at a place like Texas where they know the dangers are probably enough or of the mind of, hey, we're not talking about doing qualifying laps and trusting it's the we don't know you, we don't know if you know us, uh, we don't we have no judge of where you fit in terms of skill, capability, and, and otherwise. Are we going to go do a doubleheader weekend and have you as the only real wild card here? Again, you could trade out Cody's name with any driver that kind of fits that mold of like, hey, you've done other things and you've had success. Great. You've never done this. You're not a road to indie guy who we've seen come up and work up the ladder and, you know, all the training that we know comes with that. And so while Texas is a pretty steep debut for any rookie, even a fully trained open wheeler, yeah, so... Yet another question I hope to pose to IndyCar here uh, on the general sense, to your point here. Um, case by case or what? Uh, and could there be other drivers saying, look, let's we absolutely want to have you here. Could we just get some experience first um, to make us feel a little bit more comfortable? Uh, let's go to Daniel Summersgill. says, with Kevin Magnuson being announced as a Peugeot factory driver, in the WC next season, does that effectively rule out any move into IndyCar with Ganassi for the foreseeable future? I don't know, Daniel. I don't know if there is a seat available at Ganassi in the foreseeable future. We know that Scott Dixon, again, we expect Dixie to be around for a couple more years, but don't know how many. Uh, Marcus Erickson's a young guy. Jimmy Johnson's got at least another year to go. Uh, he's bringing the funding for that, by the way. And then you got Alex Pillow. So I don't know if there are going to be any seats available next year or the year after. Would say, of course, they would want to have him in IndyCar. It'd be crazy not to, but there'd need to be a budget behind him. And so I don't honestly know where this goes. I haven't had a chance to speak with Kevin, nor do I know if he'd want to speak about it, but... Um, I know the team loves having him in IMSA and loves having him in general. I don't know if they plan on being able to have him for more than one year or if the Peugeot deal will take him away altogether and out of IMSA. I don't know what the Peugeot contract calls for, right? Exclusivity or, you know, you're just going to have to be plugged in here so often. Even if there isn't exclusivity, you're going to be so busy Although they don't have a big calendar, meaning, you know, they don't have 17 races. This year it's seven in the WC. But, you know, we don't know what the calendars are going to be like necessarily. Will there be conflicts? Won't there be conflicts? We don't know. Um, 
So could he still do IMSA next year or maybe even IndyCar if there was an opportunity? I don't know, Daniel. Uh, I endeavor to find out. Uh, let's see. Darren Dubois, Oliver Askew, a nice run at Daytona and tested for Andretti a day later. Is anyone talking to him for an Indy 500 ride? I know that there are certain desires and conversations taking place about the possibility of the 500 as my voice goes squeaky and uh, prepubescent. To my knowledge, Darren, Oliver is not in a position where someone is saying, hey, would you drive for us at the Indy 500 and we're going to give you money for it? I am aware that there are some seats available for hire and there's an effort afoot to try and find money, but I am unaware of on February 7th of, or February 8th, I should say, good Lord, I've missed a day somehow. Um, I'm unaware at this point of any team saying, hi, uh, how, what's it going to take for us to pay you to drive for us? I wish it was the opposite. It should be the opposite. Just not aware of that being the case right now. Uh, Eater Flozada from Reddit. How you doing, Eater Flozada? Been a little while. Says, hola, Marshall. Says, as a reporter, how different is it to get in touch for the first time with drivers coming from Europe? You mentioned Alexander Rossi, Max Chilton, Marcus Erickson, and more recently, Romain Grosjean, or big names like Fernando Alonso uh, or maybe Jimmy Johnson. Then to the guys that race through the road to Indy, and then reach IndyCar. Um, add a couple more questions here. Is there a big difference between their PR habits? How long does it take them to get used to the IndyCar media slash marketing approach? Says best wishes to you and your loved ones. Thank you, Eater Flow Zada. That's a fun question. Let's see. I knew Rossi, what? Bef- no, wasn't before. Yeah, uh, I think it was before he made his F1 starts, maybe. Uh, I think he was aligned with Caterham as a test driver, but that's when I got to know him the first time from a media standpoint. And pretty straightforward, fun guy, super buttoned up and reserved. Um, nothing like the guy we know today. Granted, I mean, this is seven years ago, eight? Uh, yeah, something like that. So, you know, I mean, he's grown up and matured a lot since then, so I'd kind of expect a guy in his very early 20s to be very different from a guy who's 30-ish. Is he 30-ish? I don't know. Um, Chilton got to know in Indie Lights, and Max has until very, very recently held on to the super European approach that I've observed of any and all communications go through the team I might have good relationships with whatever media folks, but nope, off limits to you, no direct communication. Um, He set those boundaries very early, and again, his choice just stood out almost exclusively in IndyCar. Um, Marcus Erickson, I don't remember the first time he and I spoke with Probably the team arranged it or something like that, uh, but met him in testing, I think, at Laguna Seca uh, for the first time. Well, that would have been two years ago, three years, whatever many years ago. And just a friendly, warm guy and struck up a pretty easy relationship from there. And there was no real 
PR wall or whatever. Just, you know, uh, same with Ross. Again, Rossi, the same thing. Communication pretty easily, directly back and forth. Uh, same with Marcus. So he, by the way, is going to be our guest this week, uh, week in IndyCar. Guest show, funnily enough. Uh, so Marcus will be on uh, the day after I see him in Laguna. He's going to get home, and then we're going to talk about things. So uh, he'll be that guy there. Romain, only interviewed him once. Um, and you're just talking about differences. I'll just share this. Not that it means anything, but it's a thing. So had an IndyCar team or two inquire about Romain's availability and or how to get in touch with him during the off season. And through mutual relationships, was supplied Roman's phone number, and then passed that on to those who asked, and did not contact him, did not reach out, did not introduce myself or anything else uh, after receiving his contact information because it wasn't for me, and I was not told don't contact him or any of that. It's just a case of, you know, hey. Uh, this is not why I am receiving his information. And so therefore I'm just a conduit and passed it on to uh, those who wanted it. So by chance, when we did our interview, was it last Monday ahead of the announcement of him formally joining coin on Tuesday, um, just already had his number. So made it pretty easy for the two of us to get in contact and, I think the team let him know that I had his number, but obviously had not done anything with it. So I don't know if that means anything or adds anything, but again, you just try and respect uh, people's ways as best you can. I don't believe I have Fernando Alonso's phone number. I will double check, but I don't believe I do. Uh, And if I did, he would probably change it right away. Do not have his number. So there's been no direct connection there, uh, but he's always been pretty cool and accommodating whenever I've had a reason to want to connect with him through whatever team. And as for Jimmy, he's just been really super friendly and beyond accommodating and kind of a similar thing. I mean, I have his number, I've had his number, but it's just not one of those things that you use unless, the you know, There was a point in my early reporting career where Scott Dixon said, where he and I had done an interview, it might have been my first or second with him by phone, and he just said, hey, man, you know, whatever, cool, thanks. Hey, if you ever need anything, just give me a ring. Like, cool, there you go. Uh, That's how those things tend to work. So haven't gotten that from Jimmy and wouldn't think of using his direct number until he, if and when he were to say that. So... Again, I don't know if any of that is of any value, but sometimes I enjoy sharing a little bit of the process or inside baseball stuff. Last thing to close here on Eater Flozada was the big difference in PR habits. How long does it take for them? Rossi is the shining example of a guy who European trained, don't trust the media, um, he and I did an interview once in maybe, I don't know, 2015, uh, yeah, maybe. No, it wasn't 16. It wasn't before he came to IndyCar. 2014, 2015. It was about something. Something related to his F1 team. And I won't proclaim that he and I really knew each other super well, 
but I thought I had made it clear to him that I was calling for an interview. Wrote down the words that he said, published the interview. He said some things that were a little, little spicy, but they, to me, at least they weren't like, whoa, spicy. He read it, called right away, and it wasn't a panic or anything, anything like that. But it was like, dude, uh, I thought that was just you and I talking. I'm like, no, man, uh, I would have, you know, it'd be weird for me to just randomly call you since we don't know each other that well to just randomly BS. But regardless, if you were under the impression you were not talking to me for an article, even though I was believing we were clear, however, again, I can't remember what we said to start the conversation. You, But if you are of the belief that you were not talking to someone in an interview, then yes, story's coming down, story came down right away. That's not the main thing I wanted to share. What he added, which was just a real enlightening thing, which spoke to the kind of stuff that he was dealing with in Europe, in Formula One, on the cusp of, form, again, I'm forgetting the exact timing, but... He just said, hey, you know, I mean, I know, you know, uh, you guys always want to have, you know, some sort of, you know, big headline or or, or big topic. You know, I I fully get that and I appreciate that and I respect that, you know, you guys need to drive traffic and need to get eyeballs and so on and so forth. And I think I kind of stopped and was like, brother, again, there there was no like, hey, I'm going to trick Alexander into saying something uh, spicy or TMZ-ish just to, you know, hey, I'm going to call and burn Alexander Rossi and destroy whatever relationship we have for a story that's going to, you know, get some lift for a day or two and then, again, be forgotten among all the other news stories that came. Um, That's not something I would do, but it was clear that that is the kind of thing he had to be on the lookout for in treatment from uh though some people in how they approach covering formula one and i've had other folks involved in in formula one tell me the same exact thing and not years ago but like (laughs) within the last couple of months just recounting some of the things where it's like i can no longer talk to that person because i can't trust what they're going to do with our interview or i sit at the table with them with one or two other uh, people and a PR this and a the other person, and we're all recording everything that's being said so that this person sees there's no way they can take and misconstrue my words and try and spin it into some TMZ explosive headline. And if they ask for an interview, we will do our best to pre-write, pre-game plan the answers and I may or may not have something pretty close to a script to read that we've all looked at and agreed. There's nothing in here that could be spun or taken out of context because we know that this person who may work for a significant outlet that benefits our team and sponsors and whatever from being in their publication, um, this person is still prone to holy cow type uh, stuff. And so we got to, treat this like 
we are, are almost being attacked and how do we save ourselves uh, and but just not totally run away so not trying to put all that on alexander uh from this exchange but i could just feel that like oh dude you're kind of doing that gotcha thing to me that i'm always having to look out for over here turns out it was just a total miscommunication but wow it was revealing eater flozada and now who's among the best best interviews you're going to find in indycar uh hell open wheel racing in general alexander rossi uh period so yeah that dude rock star uh let's see driver coaches jj gertler you say rocket rick that being mirrors at penske dario not sure who you're talking about there at ganassi uh, do other teams have driver coaches whether they are alumni or not uh, and you also asked jimmy vassar and michael andretti fill those roles at their teams or are there others unaware of michael doing any of that jimmy definitely coach but i don't know if it's so much nah Turn three is flat out in third compared to uh, a lift and trying to do it in fourth. Um, But yes, uh, you have others who are absolutely coaches. Lee Bentham, former Toyota Atlantic champion. Um, He is a coach, been part of the, what, Ed Carpenter team for a long time. Bob Perona what moved from Aaron McLaren SP over to Andretti, I believe. Um, I believe the Meyer shank side. Sorry if I'm brain farting here, but yes, uh, there are definitely uh, some pretty smart people who've been in the paddock doing this for a little while. Drew Wetzel. Hey, Drew says, how many engineers did car teams have these days and what are their different roles and responsibilities in what areas might a smaller team forego staffing versus a larger team? Thanks, as always, for the great show. Well, kind of you to say that, Drew. Um, yeah, so we're talking straight timing stand. You will tend to see at least two engineers sitting up front. Uh, often you'll have, could be the team owner, could be a team manager, general manager, you name it, sitting between them on one side or off in a little perch of their own uh looking after strategy but you will have your race engineer who is responsible for the chassis and its performance settings hopefully positive performance instead of negative performance race engineer is the person calling for all of the tuning aspects on the vehicle pretty straightforward we're going to go up on ride height we're going to make this wing change we're going to alter the camber on the right front from this to that person who is saying all right they're the equivalent of the offensive coordinator and hell well defensive coordinator at the same time they're the ones coming up with all the plays and informing the chief mechanic and mechanics but informing the chief mechanic who then passes that information down, the instructions down to the rest of their crew on the changes to make. The person sitting next to the race engineer is more often than not what we refer to now today as the assistant engineer. Uh, That, back in my day, and I did this role a lot, uh, was referred to as the DAG 
data acquisition geek. It's just a, it's a colorful acronym. The DAG just didn't really encompass all of the responsibilities these days. So assistant engineer is what has become the normal expression for that role. So that person is usually responsible for the data acquisition system. That person can also be responsible for fuel strategy, looking after fuel in the race. How long can we go in a stop? How long won't we go, etc. That person is tied directly to the race engineer, often providing information, key information. Uh, mention that the race engineer can be a bit like the offensive and defensive coordinator, if you want, in football parlance. The strict Strategist, the race strategist, can be a little bit like the head coach in that regards, right? They're, while the race engineer is calling the vehicular plays, right? We're going to want these tires. We're going to want this change during the pit stop, whatever, whatever. The strategist is often a little bit like the head coach in deciding when you're going to pit, when you're not, uh, looking at some of the bigger picture items little bit of a secondary parallel here drew in that between the race engineer and assistant engineer there can be a little bit of that coordinator head coach role too in that you will have the rate the race engineer looking to the assistant engineer who is more often than not pouring over the telemetry that's coming across live and feeding things hey, I'm seeing whether it's a temperature on a tire, pressure on a tire, a center of pressure aerodynamic balance change or percentage change, I should say, that indicates uh, a shift in the vehicle's balance. It could be a lot of different things. Strain gauge numbers, it... Temperatures on the engine, hey, boy, I don't know if we've got something uh, that's in the left side radiator, but we have seen the temperature starting to spike. I think we're going to be okay getting to the next pit stop, but we're going to need to have somebody dig into that side pod and fish around and potentially pull out something. Or is there just, for whatever reason, a bunch of debris and rubber in there that's clogging something? Again, you know, there's options, but that assistant engineer is you know not too dissimilar from someone feeding the engineering head coach a lot of good information to make adjustments uh and to game plan what they're going to do at the next pit stop oh okay well i see that again our target pressure tire pressures were this and we're great in on three but we're off on the fourth And, okay, uh, hey, we're please going to adjust this tire pressure to that um, for the new set that's going to go on. That should compensate and get everything in the right zone. Um, So it's a pretty dynamic thing, Drew. It's pretty cool. Outside of that, and to close, behind them, the folks that if you're watching on the good old television – and they shoot and you look into and you see the timing stand and you see the strategist and the race engineer and the assistant engineer. And who knows, there might be some people behind them. It could be a 
team owner or a, a, a spouse or whatever behind them, pretty much never seen, you will have an engine tech from either Honda or Chevy that is glued and watching all aspects of what their motor is doing in real time. That's something where the team's assistant engineer will be keeping an eye on those things as well. Not tons of stuff, but some pretty basic parameters, but they'll certainly be hearing from and communicating with the engine tech who works for Honda or works for Chevy frequently. They're getting information passed up to them. So yeah, uh, you have a couple other quick things too, Drew. You have in some teams, you have a performance director who is looking across all vehicles. You have similar title, but different roles. Technical director who is doing the same, looking over all vehicles in both scenarios. They could either be plugged into the timing stand with a headset Depending on how it's set up, it could communicate across multiple or they, as we often see, with headset on, will unplug from one timing stand and run down to another and plug in and say, hey, we just noticed this trend on this car or, hey, we just made this setup change, uh, setup change, sorry, made this modest change, either aero change or tire pressure change, whatever. And boy, our driver is loving that like you wouldn't believe. And I know that you're starting on more or less the same setup. So just something to consider uh, talking about. Or, hey, we just did this thing and boy, it was a disaster. So don't do it. Um, You know, you have a lot of methods of communications available. But you'll have some of these kind of overarching technical performance, you name it, type people who aren't tied to any one timing stand or if they even if they are if they find something of great value they will absolutely share it and or bring it to the other timing stand if there's just maybe one car it might be relevant to to let them know about it um after that and i'm talking to you to close here drew more about the jobs you would see on pit lane but Your data acquisition geek could also be extremely good at dampers and building dampers and dyno testing dampers, or there could be another person who is excellent at doing that. Um, There's, you know, some other engineering roles. Those who focus more on the simulation side, your, your assistant engineer could also be the person looking after all the simulation stuff as well, or who knows, depending upon preference or experience it could be the race engineer who is leading that um it's pretty rare just to finish here drew where you have an engineer on a team who does one thing and one thing only maybe that's different in bigger richer forms of the sport but at least in indycar uh most engineers do at least two things And I know from my time as a race engineer and even assistant engineer, same routine. You're usually responsible for more than one thing uh, because, yeah, just the idea of only doing one thing is actually a little bit weird. (laughs) It's a little bit weird, my friend. Uh, Let's see. Where do we go? Let's go to something fun. Caleb Whistler. 
says with NBC having the rights to both IndyCar and Saturday night live, what IndyCar driver past or present would you like to see host SNL says hashtag me personally. I'd like to see a deal where the current champion gets a slot on the show. (sighs) Well, Caleb, you know, no disrespect to some of our drivers, but while it might be a long shot for some of them to win the title, if some of those long shots were to win, oh, lowest ratings in SNL's history. Here we come. Past or present. I think in his prime, Alexander Zanardi would have been hilarious. Pretty heavy accent. Never mattered to me or mean meant anything to me, but I know some of my countrymen and countrywomen aren't too fond of folks with heavy accents. Uh, but Zanardi, I think just has such a playful spirit would have been awesome if he'd been able to be on SNL during his, uh, IndyCar days. If we're talking today, the guy, I mean, I can, I know that, uh, Hinch was mentioned. Hinch even responded saying, no, 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 not me. No, actually, what did he say? Oh, the things he would do. Um, yeah, to get that scary and or remarkable. Uh, let's see. Could it be anyone other than Will Power? Of course it can't. Come on. That guy is so insane. He is so naturally funny without saying jokes. Just being Will Power. I think folks would fall apart at how funny he is, how crazy he is, the bizarre theories, the half half thoughts, get halfway through something and stop. Um, I think folks would just be, they'd be calling one another, texting one another, doing anything to get each other to turn on NBC right now. Turn on SNL. I have no idea who this guy is. They have let the wildest, craziest, wackiest guy host the show. That'd be Will Power. Then could you imagine him actually putting in effort to make us laugh? I, it'd have to be willpower. I am, a, I am all 100% all about that. Uh, let's see, where do we go? Robbie Berger and Marshall, you owe me an answer. My second time asking. Let's pretend I've somehow attained a billion dollars. I start an IndyCar team, and for my first move, I create a gong show for the below former IndyCar drivers in IMSA. One wild card. Which two do you think set themselves apart to win the job? And you list Jack Hawksworth, Zach Veach, Gabby Chavez, Spencer Piggott, Oliver Askew, Carlos Munoz, Tristan Vautier. I think that answer is pretty easy. I, as your, I assume, since you've got the billion dollars and you're asking me to solve this uh, or to come up with this, I assume you've hired me, Robbie. You didn't tell me how much I'm getting paid. I'm only asking for 900 million of your billion. Uh, I would say Jack Hawksworth and Oliver Askew are my go-tos, without a doubt. Why them and not others? Because I don't like the others? No, not at all. Uh, Zach Veach, love him. You know I love him. We all love him. Great friend of the show. Zach had three years on a top-line car. It didn't really work out. Gabby, 
I mean, uh, if you said you've, you're doing three cars, Gabby is my third for sure. We did have Gabby for a little while. He wasn't in stuff that was totally bad. He showed us a lot. I just, I don't know if there's that burning. I didn't get a proper shot thing within him burning as much as a Jack or an Oliver Spencer. I'd love to see him in another full-time opportunity nearly 50 IndyCar starts. Again, I feel like we have a pretty good sense of who he is. Uh, not a question mark there. And I think I'd love to see him in the field. Don't get me wrong, but just I don't have a question mark hanging over him. I don't have a question mark hanging over Zach. Not so much Gabby and Munoz, not at all. I think Carlos would be his usual very fast self, but no question mark due to his experience. Uh, Vautier, he's in there as well. Still little, hey, are you going to be top three or in the wall? Not sure. That's part of his composition that makes me not pick him right now. Hawksworth, ask you question marks over those guys and a belief that in a quality Robbie Berggren, uh still got a $100 million left of uh, what you got that I haven't taken from you to put towards an IndyCar team. We subcontract with a Penske or a Ganassi or an Andretti for a two-car team. Harding, Steinbrenner, Berggren, uh, Motorsports with Andretti Autosport, Kerr, Baggagini, and Herda Andretti. Um, I think Oliver Askew and Jack Hawksworth are race winners within two years and maybe multiple race winners within two years. So there's my answer. Uh, okay. Clikes Burgers. Hey, it's Kevin Kerner here. Thought I would posting thought I would thought I would try posting on Reddit this time. All right, Kev. Going to take a, I think a final sip of coffee here. Said this might not so much be a question, maybe an observation or thinking out loud. Think about how the automotive industry is changing so fast and really pushing towards electrification. That's all fine if that's the direction they want to go. But I have my reservations about racing going the same route, by which I mean electrification, in order to keep interest of the manufacturers. Racing series may keep the manufacturers by electrifying, maybe, but will they keep fan interest? I just don't know. It says, I watch Formula E, but if I'm honest, it holds my attention the least. I don't eagerly anticipate the next race season, uh, the next race or season like I do IndyCar F1. Cars are not very fast. Lack of loud engine noise, just weird to me. Seems like motorsport series are in a very difficult pickle regarding the future, and I don't really know what the solution would be. What say you? Oh, Kev, what are you doing to me here, buddy? Uh, kidding aside, got into some of this before, but wanted to uh, still till, still feel this because I think there's a great kind of sub aspect to it that we didn't get to before, and that is what do we want to see to keep us engaged? And, yeah, I know that I am in the media and I make a living in this and have made a living in racing since I was in my teens and all that. Yeah. But whatever, whatever, still a fan. If this thing did not interest me, I wouldn't be doing this in the media. I would find truly, I'd find something else to do. I'm not good at dedicating many hours of my life, dedicating my life effectively to a job. If it just doesn't interest me. So, like you, Kev, this thing of, what if internal combustion engines are 
only found at historic races in 10 or 15 years time and everything's kind of sort of electric am i going to be really interested i don't know because i haven't seen that yet in indycar nascar f1 whatever imsa but i do think that there might be something lost i know podcast guy audio guy post a lot of in-car audio ambient audio so again we kind of get that i there's an aspect that gets lost with electric racing unless you put speakers on the cars which i guess we could do and pipe in some of my in-car audio but yeah is that going to be something that really keeps fan interest engaged it's a great question i I, heck among the other things that i ask myself about somewhat frequently kev is let's say earth says we're not going to electric vehicles for another hundred years we have come up with a carbon neutral fuel there's no need for electrification we can use internal combustion engines they it no longer they no longer pollute both on the racing side but most importantly the production car side we all drive vehicles that use synthetic fuel we're not taking fuel out of the earth you know fossil fuels we're not pumping crude oil out of the earth and then pumping a bad stuff into the air out of the exhaust that's gone would racing still have a long runway as a popular sport whether it was staying exactly the way it is fossil fuels and loud noise and all that kind of stuff no changes would it remain popular enough to be sustained like it is today for another 20 30 40 50 years if we were to go to a carbon neutral fuel, so forget electrification, just, hey, environment's all good in racing and production cars, most importantly, they're holding on to their ice uh, propulsion systems and they want to promote that in racing. So again, 20, 30, 50 years, no changes there. Even if we go fully electric, which maybe could appeal to a new audience, I don't know. It's another giant question, Kev. If racing went 100% electric tomorrow and whatever, I don't know the percentage of people on the planet who love, like, or are interested in EVs, but if they all knew or everyone was alerted at the same time, hey, racing EVs are a real, they're a, the new thing, not just Formula E, but every other place. Uh, would those EV lovers, owners, and buyers go quickly and silently to the next racetrack to see them compete. I don't know. And when I say I don't know, I'm not just saying I don't have knowledge. I'm also kind of saying I don't think so. So that's my concern, Kev. And I'm sorry if this is the Marshall's Concerns episode, but between not being totally sure IndyCar is going to get a third manufacturer in time for the 2023 new formula start to the other thing that I listed as a concern that, uh, that being IndyCar, sorry, I forgot about it for a minute. IndyCar remaining agile and moving with the auto industry as it changes so they can stay buddies and keep working together and all being good to, I just don't know if racing popular professional racing as we know it today 
is going to be something that in 20, 30, 50 years time is going to be a thing. I don't know if enough new fans, whatever it is they might like in terms of the type of vehicle, fully electric, 100% non-electric, using carbon neutral fuels, whatever. I don't know if we are making enough new fans so that if the older generation that is really keeping us alive right now in terms of the sport being popular, once their time here is done, are there enough new fans to backfill and keep racing relevant and important? I just don't know. The example that I've used and many others have used for countless years, boxing and horse racing. (laughs) Horse racing used to be the biggest sport in the country. It sure isn't now. It's the smallest little thing. And we remember it a couple times a year with whatever big Kentucky Derby, Preakness, and whatever, as it's on NBC possibly or whichever channel. But other than that, do we know about the 20 or 30 other horse racing events that are a part of the calendar? Probably not. I don't even know if there are other ones. I'm assuming there are. But it's no longer a thing. No one, by and large, knows about it, cares about it, follows it. Such a vast difference to what it once was in terms of where it sat uh, in American culture. Same with boxing, right? I know MMA has taken over, but even so, boxing was once the thing, and now it's like, whoa, if it's not a YouTuber fighting a ex-NBA player, like, yeah, we hear about it a couple times a year, but it's almost forgotten. That's my concern, Kev. We're going to have to have enough new fans who like the automobile, like competition, and really like those two things put together to make sure that racing in 2030, however, I don't know how many years, isn't an old-timey thing. So if we go full electric and full electric soon to close on your topic, I fear that a lot, whatever, I don't know what percentage that is, but it feels like, It'd be a pretty significant number of today's larger population of racing fans who enjoy sports like IndyCar that are not full electric would probably check out and say, I'm good. I don't know. Maybe this is where the world's going. Uh, This is just not what I consider entertainment or compelling competition. Uh, Let's see. Kevin Frederico. Hey, MP, if the schedule doesn't change and Barber starts off the season, which driver or team do you feel will be strong coming out of the gate? Let's see, 2015 IndyCar champion Scott Dixon, 2016 champion Simon Pagano, and then here's the part I really wanted to get to, 2017 champion Joseph Newgarden, 2018 champion Scott Dixon, 2019 champion Joseph Newgarden, 2020 champion Scott Dixon. If we go off of the (laughs) six, Glick nature of Dixie, Joseph, no, Joseph Dixie, Joseph Dixie. I would say I think Joseph's going to start off pretty darn strong. I'm not saying Dixon won't. It's just always interesting to see how in this Penske-Ganassi back and forth, uh, 
there always seems to be a strong reaction by the team that lost the championship to come back and be stronger uh, to have the proper response. So I'm not saying Dixon's going to be off the pace at all. I'm just saying, how does Team Penske respond when they lose the championship? They usually come back pretty damn strong. Same with Ganassi. So I think Joseph in particular is going to be his usual holy cow, watch out for him type self. I think Dixon's going to be in very good shape as well. And I would say throw in kid by the name of Colton Herter from Dreddy Autosport. Throw in a kid by the name of Pato O'Ward. I think I just mentioned your top four from last year by chance. It wasn't intentional, but uh, testing has shown us so far that, yeah, uh, boy, we can expect some pretty good things. I know Penske didn't have a great Sebring test here a week or two ago, but I'm not sweating any of that. I think really it's going to be a bit of a rinse, wash, repeat. Here we go again with these four. I think Rossi is going to be in that mix, right? There's no way he's going to have a, a crappy repeat of how 2020 started for him. So beyond those five, of course, there's going to be more. But I think those five, if you just had money to bet on five to start the year strong, four of those five, uh, I think, are really safe bets, Kev. Uh, let's see. Doogie Davies, you got a question about running different layouts. I'm going to pass on that for right now, my man. If you really want, send that back in for next week. Tom Firth, any idea if the imminent closure of NBCSN and the shift to the Peacock channel will have an, any impact on any car's international TV distribution? Uh, he says, we get it on Sky F1, which is Comcast-owned here in the UK. As I understand, Tom, and please don't take this as gospel or fact, but just some stuff that I've heard, I don't... I haven't heard anything to say, okay, when we shut down NBCSN, boy, IndyCar is just going to live on Peacock. I think we're going to see a pretty darn good blend of big NBC and also uh, USA, USA Network as well. Do I think next year we might have a race or two or a couple of them on Peacock? I wouldn't be surprised. I don't have any information to tell you that I know that is fact. But it wouldn't surprise me. But I I don't know if if I'd be looking solely to Peacock as a place to get, you know, half or more of your IndyCar races starting in 2022. But uh, time will tell here, my friend. Uh, let's see. Bob Gravel, as we start to wind down, where are we at time-wise? Yeah, we're coming up not too far away from an hour and a half. Just going to do one episode or so this week. I might throw in a couple here from the bottom to extend this out to about an hour 45. But, um, yeah, I'm just going to do one this week. Um, yeah, we got a busy wife and I have a fairly busy end of the week going on here. Bob, you mentioned Gateway. It's becoming an amazing race. Been there. Curious what's different about Gateway being part of open wheel racing in the early 2000s. Uh, where it didn't last very long, you've asked us better promotions, et cetera, et cetera. Yes, huh, 100%. Uh, Curtis LeFrancois, of course, John Bisky, Bishy. I always forget how to pronounce John's last name. Um, John Bomarito, masterclass. Always say it, always love saying it. They put on a masterclass of how to hold an IndyCar race. So, yes, they do a wonderful job. They do wonderful promotions and it's certainly a sports town 
They put on a great show. People come out. Um, Oscar Love, who goes by the screen name. Is that even a thing? Is screen name? That sounds like such old parlance. I'm sorry. Uh, Angry Black Man says, bought tickets for the 2021 Indy 500, but have yet to hear what the seating capacity will be. Uh, do you hear our discussions going on? Absolutely. I don't know what the answer is going to be, Oscar, but yes, there's absolute discussions going on. Uh, the big thing that happened last year was involving city, county, just call it governance, local government governance on what it could be, what they should or shouldn't do, what comfort was felt Ultimately, uh, IMS and IndyCar made the decision on their own. They weren't, you know, dictated to, from my recollection. But you know, there was a lot of we're going to talk and see and get a feel. I'm sure they're going to do something similar. I have not heard as much, frankly, barely anything about. Oh boy, we might have to cut down to almost nothing and or consider doing nothing altogether. So. I'm curious, like you, to find out where those discussions lead. And is it half capacity, 25%, 75 100 I don't know. Plus, we don't know where we're going to be in three months' time or so uh, with our uh, unwelcome friend known as COVID. Uh, Stuart Arith, you send in a question about Minardi USA. I'm going to try and recall, remember to ask this of my friend Michael Cannon, who I'm going to see tomorrow, who is a race engineer for that team. So... Send it back in next week as a reminder. And if I've forgotten to speak to Michael, well, when I see it, I will reach out and make sure to get his thoughts. So uh, let's see. Brian Burrell, you ask about, uh, you write in something that interests me, and I'm loaded with ignorance about this. Uh, you say, curious if you've heard much about, this is all caps, EVO, EVO, with Ryan Norman's dad. Says he was on the uh, Off Track with Hinch and Rossi show discussing the investment strategy. I hear all the time about fans wanting a GoFundMe page to support their favorite driver. Brian says, well, this is pretty close. Basically a mutual fund for athletes. So I believe Rossi and the big man, uh, Justin Wilson, use similar strategies to help get to F1. Uh, your thoughts on this? Uh, is it sustainable or is there a possibility to expand and grow? Any word on what drivers they will have? Uh, he says Kyle Kirk would be a great investment. I don't want to answer the last part about sustainable or whatever because, again, pure ignorance i need to learn more before i could even have an opinion on that the justin angle even the scott dixon angle different in that we're talking about personal investments where significant investments to get them going all with promises of repayment and these were not smallish numbers. <clears throat> Definitely something that I will <clears throat> been wanting to do a feature about this with Dixie. Obviously, uh, the big man's gone, but um, with Julia, with uh, Steph to maybe talk about this. His dad, Keith, big love to uh, the Wilson, Madre, and Padre. Uh, this is a little bit different. This is more of a personal loan type deal, a consortium coming together together of investors and having to pay all of it back. I believe that's a difference here. Now, again, I could be totally wrong if the Evo strategy is the same thing. And 
you can invest and support, uh, but you get all your money back from the driver. It's basically a futures earning earnings thing that Dixie and Justin did. And they aren't the only ones, but at least in IndyCar, they come to mind first. I just need to learn more about this. I should probably just call Ryan Norman <laughs> and get up to speed with him on that, Brian. So I would be lying if I said I thought I would get up to speed by next week's show, Brian. But don't hesitate to throw it back in or ping me and say, hey, dummy, uh, have you learned? And if not, please go learn. Uh, let's see. John Wojnar, good pal of the show, says, Marshall, after watching the Super Bowl and seeing the happenings on Twitter, I noticed people are criticizing Patrick Mahomes' family for critiquing the refs on Twitter. It got me thinking, other than Connor Daly and his uh, father, allegedly, if any driver's family ever caused problems for their driver in social media or otherwise, as always, praying for you and the family. Thank you, John. One example comes to mind. It's of a guy that I just mentioned. Got the last drop of coffee there. That being Scott Dixon. I don't want to say Emma caused any real problems for him because I don't think she did. I think it. I caused myself problems. Was it the 2015, 2016? I don't even know. 15, 16, it feels like Long Beach race where they had that cockamamie exit lane penalty thing where again leaving the pits and going down to the end of the straightaway you couldn't blend you couldn't move across this line and uh, they had cameras and all kinds of stuff and dixon was deemed to have moved across early and i think that was it or was moved over across the lane somehow Maybe that was Seb. I'm forgetting a little some of the details here. This is what I remember, John. There was a pretty serious question about was Dixon should Dixon have been penalized? He was penalized. And his amazing wife Emma took to his defense on the social medias. As I saw it, this is where you get into trouble, but whatever. Uh I felt and wrote in my post race analysis thing, brain dump thing that the call was correct and uh i think meant you know called out the fact that dixie's wife was on social media defending him and it wasn't a good look or something like that i've had one angry conversation with scott dixon before uh and that was the cause of it and it was him calling me and little sidebar when you write something and you know it's going to be unpopular with someone like a driver or a team owner or whatever, again, you know these things ahead of time for the most part, right? You kind of know like, all right, well, you know, that's going to piss that person off, but I can't just write. I can't strip all that stuff out because then I'm not writing authentically, at least authentically to me. So, I mean, it's what I think. I'm going to share it. Uh, I've looked at it. In this case, I do recall a lot of screen captures and looking at this, that, and the other and coming to the belief that, yes, indeed, IndyCar was right to make that call and uh, it wasn't a good look with his wife defending him because it was pretty clear it was a penalty. Just got the call from Dixie, not within hours, I think, maybe, of the story going up, and it was a, dude, what the F? You know, I mean, if you know, if you want to take me to task and whatever that's fine dude but really did you need to include my wife in it and i understood his point uh, i didn't you know 
she was not included for derision. It was just, if we're going to cover the whole topic, then let's cover the whole topic. And that was topic of loved ones piling on the ref when, in my view, I didn't think the ref was right. And so it adds Patrick Mahomes' family level of scrutiny for criticizing the refs. So it just, I don't know if there was, it wasn't a yelling thing. I mean, you know, he wasn't happy and you could tell, and he was a little bit heated. And I just tried to explain to him the reasoning why. And look, man, this is relevant because now you have, you know, your spouse going to bat for you on social media, elevating this. And so anyways, I said, look, I don't know if it was the right thing to include her tweet in there with what I wrote. Maybe I shouldn't have. I don't know. It wasn't a don't talk about my family or kids because I just brought it up out of nowhere. It was like, I'm citing the public thing that is here. But still, there was a feeling that might have gone too far. Said, look, if that is how you feel, it was not intentional. I didn't think it was going to make you like, yay, I'm happy. I didn't think it was going to piss you off this much. For that, I apologize. I don't like to make you mad intentionally. There was no intent. But hearing it, hey, you know, I don't want to make anybody mad uh, for what feels like no reason or for what you say is totally unjustified. So don't necessarily agree with what you're saying in every capacity. Certainly didn't mean to piss you off. But at the same time, I got to write things as I see it. And I don't know if we came to like a yay and a telephone hug. But at least, you know, hung up and went on about our lives. And I don't think that let anything affect the two of us. I could be wrong. Could have cursed my name and bought a little plush toy and stuck a bunch of pins in it and was hoping to, you know, burn me at the cross. I don't know. Uh, that may still happen. It's always a chance. Um, but, yeah, uh, beyond that, I don't know, man. Um, would I be revealing too much by saying I don't follow a lot of what people are saying on social media if they aren't the exact drivers. So this one just happened to catch my attention back in the day. Uh, where are we going? Got a couple more here to get to. And then I think we're just about done. Uh, Sean Lee, my question got co-opted for another question. Uh, this past weekend, originally wanted to ask about the irony of the two, quote, rookies opting out of ovals this year for safety. Um, they happen to be the person who's won more ovals than anyone in history. Uh, and the other guy who I'm sure, uh, not sure how he didn't die three months ago in a road course race and how this trend is worrisome. Okay. Uh, if you have time, I wouldn't mind that being addressed. Uh, Okay. I don't know if irony is the word uh, I would use. I would just say that the possibly highest, most acknowledged and readily apparent risk in North American motor racing is super speedway competition in an Indy car. If we think of deaths and serious injury, sadly, they've, both happened at the same track, Pocono, 2015, 2018. Go back to Las Vegas before that in 2011. Um, we think about multi-car pileups. We think about Michaela Lotion 
in what was it 2014 i believe at fontana um i mean thing very important things inside of his chest that that distribute blood to his entire body were almost like separated from everything else inside of his body like oh my gosh serious stuff these are all known sean so if you have a guy who's 45 years old like jimmy who's done everything want everything you name it has always had a fascination with indycar and realizes that he's never going to be more than more famous than he was winning seven cup titles and daytona 500s and that kind of stuff i can see why he and his wife would say yeah let's skip the the riskiest places the places that we know odds history tell us boy if something bad is going to happen throughout your year these are the ones so hey since you're not 20 years old and trying to build a life for yourself and to demonstrate you are a gunfighter supreme and so on and so forth uh, let's not do that totally get it if i was him i might be making the same decision Indy 500, still feel like I got to do that. But again, it's not like he can't next year. Uh, Roma, yeah, I fully get. Like he mentioned in wherever it was, hey, before my crash, I planned on doing the whole thing. After the crash, boy, those road and street courses look awesome. Another thing, too, just to close here, you got to keep in mind that for them... This is stepping into the unknown. Roma obviously is a lifetime of open wheels. I realize IndyCar is not a totally foreign concept vehicularly, but it's something brand new to him. He's going to spend a lot of the year in a country that, you know, isn't his. Going to tracks he's never seen before. In a car he's never driven before. Against teams and drivers he's, by and large, never competed against. I can see why coming off of that crazy, insane crash of his, he would say, ah, I'm going to ease into it. I'm going to do 13 of the 17 races to start. And after that, maybe I'll decide to do more. And Jimmy falling into that same category. You throw in one other thing here. Uh, Let's see. You say, uh... Saturday afternoon, my five foot three, maybe ninety nine pound, sixteen year old ballerina daughter informed me that she wants to be on a pit crew one day. So, what would it take to get a gig on an open wheel or sports car team? Special qualifications, a degree, doing push ups. Uh, let's see. Since she's sixteen, I don't know if she's going to grow lots taller. Can I don't know not knowing the general height of women in your family and whatnot. Can't tell you if she's going to grow and become not only taller, but also larger in stature. Uh, The fact that she's a ballerina, I would say is pretty amazing. If I'm thinking speed, dexterity and control, I'm not saying she couldn't do lots of things over the wall. There are definitely some items that require a lot of strength and not just strength to do them once, but repeated with fairly exacting precision and speed. And I don't know if that's changing a rear tire or being a refueler. 
We know that if we look at the body types of the people doing those things, they don't necessarily have to be tall, tall, but they are certainly, they look more like a football player uh, than a ballerina. So would that preclude her from doing anything? No, not at all. Uh, Again, not knowing how tall she's going to be uh, and what kind of physical presence she would have in terms of muscle strength and endurance, going off of where she is right now, I could say if you think IndyCar, you have the windscreen assistant, person that goes over the pit wall, pulls tear-offs off if needed, hands a drink to the driver. Um, That's a role that is certainly one about speed and dexterity and things that I would think would complement your daughter. If I'm thinking in uh, sports cars, you have a role that some teams make use of, not many, and I apologize if the rules have somehow changed and I've missed it, but driver change assistant is one. Uh, It's something where in most instances, the driver coming out of the car stays and helps the driver going in. But in some instances, you have teams that use a dedicated crew person. The driver getting out, gets out and goes. And there is a driver change assistant there that helps get the belts connected uh, if they need to connect the drink bottle hose to the helmet and get the net put into the window and the vehicles that have nets. So that could be a role or position Five foot three might be a little bit of a challenge depending upon the car, right? If it's a GT car where the door opens and you're standing right there next to the driver, no issue that I can foresee. If it's a prototype that has a side pod that, while not crazy wide, is enough to where uh, could be a little bit of a challenge unless you're you know halfway climbing into the car. Um, so couple roles that come to mind right now. Now, again, if she happens to maybe grow a little bit more and has more, you know, muscle mass to consider throwing tires around or similar, then that'd be pretty darn amazing. And there'd be no reason she could not do those things. So uh, awesome that she wants to do it. Can't I truly cannot wait and hope that she does. You know what might be cool? And I know you mentioned that she would like to be on a pit crew. Um, I'm thinking over the wall stuff. And again, as you get to IndyCar, you know, if you're not being a race engineer, uh, if you're not sitting on the timing stand, you know, pretty much almost everybody goes over pit wall. You have, you know, someone, they open the dead man valve, as it's called, which opens flow from the refueling tank uh, into the car. That's a role that could be done. But if we're talking kind of, you mentioned ballerina, so I think physical performance and capabilities uh, that's the quick run through on the over the wall side. If we're talking, she has an interest in mechanic or engineering or management and also maybe wants to go over the wall. Uh, boy, she has a ton of options in front of her. So it's really knowing if she knows at this stage, again, at 16, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I just wanted to with race cars um if she happens to have an idea a further idea sean of yeah this part of pit crew interests me 
let me know and I can drill a little bit deeper. But if she does want to do this, she's at the perfect age to head to local whatever racetracks you might be near and SCCA club race, NASA club race, volunteer. Is it a, is there a high school or a college, some sort of formula SAE or something going on there? Uh, road to indie type stuff coming to town wherever you happen to live uh, go and meet and talk with some of the teams there at 16 she is young but she's not that young right you're gonna find 18 19 20 year old kids working on some of those teams uh, as well so she's at that stage where if she wants to uh, there's probably some pretty cool stuff she could start doing so let me know if she has a uh, deeper idea, and I will uh, share whatever else I can. All right, last thing or two here I'm going to get to. Matt Philpot, you're going to hate me here. Uh, you've resubmitted something. It's a fairly long thing. Uh, send it in again, my friend, <laughs> and make a note to our pal Tim Falkowitz. Uh, please put this towards the top. Ed George, you got a couple long ones. Sorry, brother, not going to be able to get there. Turtle Master 942, MP first time submitting. Is there any chance IndyCar would start putting out their annual historical record books again? And uh, if it's a digital only thing and maybe not a physical book? I uh, said the last one was released after the 2014 season. Uh, and since I became an open wheel fan in 2018, those books have been amazing for finding records more in depth than who on race XYZ in 87. Um, you said, for example, it has who has the most wins from pole, which is great. Uh, it can't have been easy to compile a data from a sport with history as messy as ours, but the hard part is done. Now all that's left is to add the information from the last few years. Says I'm not trying to complain too much. Um, I'm also a fan of IMSA and its various sports car predecessors, for which simple data like all-time wins list is a needle in a haystack. Um well, that's really nice to close for your first submission here. You say, uh, thanks for all you do for us greedy fans. I hope your wonderful self, your wonderful wife, and your wonderful cats are having a great 2021. So I love this question, Turtle Master 942 I even love your name because it's a classic Reddit screen name, Turtle Master 942 Got to tell me what that's in reference to. And I didn't know you could become an accredited Turtle Master. That's also pretty awesome. Steve Shunk is the person you need to thank. And so I know this is coming in via Reddit. If you happen to be on the book faces or the tweeters, uh, at Twitter, it's at Steve Shunk, S-H-U-N-C-K. And on Facebook, Steve Shunk. Uh, just say thank you to him. Because when he was part of IndyCar, uh, Robin refers to him as the best PR man that ever lived. I will definitely say that since I've been fortunate to work in a variety of series, many of which Steve never happened to grace, that there are a small handful of greats, and he is certainly among them. Uh, credit Steve for that, because he's all about the history and trying to keep it live, keep it modern, make us known and educated about uh, those who came before us. Since they chose to not retain Steve, I am unaware of anyone maintaining Steve's level of records. There is a rather amazing person, though, named Arnie Schrieben, who's been with IndyCar for 119, 11 billion years. And I know that Arnie does his darndest 
to keep a lot of these items uh, moving and updated. Uh, Russ Thompson, who does stats for NBC and their broadcast, might be the guru among gurus with keeping uh, these kinds of things alive and afloat, but not, quote, for IndyCar officially as a member of the communications team uh, in some sort of official-ish publication or readily available document. So Steve Shunk, Russ Thompson, Arnie Sreben, uh these are the kinds of folks I would suggest uh, finding. I believe they're all available on the social medias. I can't tell you if they're all if they're on every single platform, but uh, between Russ, Arnie, and Steve, if you get a hold of one of them, they can probably point you to the others or give you some good insight. And yeah, I'm with you. This does seem like among the many things that would be great to have that if they were to spend the time and money to catch everything up through 2020, have it all in a digital format, then in theory it wouldn't be too hard during the off season to just update the stats with everything that just came from the most current season. Uh, Justin Holmes, you mentioned, do you think IndyCar should get a docu-series like Formula One has on Netflix? Yes, uh, uh, that's been asked many times by many smart folks like yourself who see the Formula One documentaries that are friggin' amazing and say, gosh, why don't we have it? I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. Uh, let's see, where else do we go here before we say goodbye? Lance Snyder, you're killing me here again uh, on the LED panels. Um, also, uh, I'm just going to read this because he's our, our uh, Minister of Mirth on the show for those who don't know. MP, when can we expect LED panels to make their triumphant return to IndyCar? Hashtag me personally, if women or men, no judgment, can successfully style their hair with Gorilla Glue, I fail to see why getting something that already works in sporty cars to work in IndyCar is so difficult. You know, maybe it's the lack of Gorilla Glue on the IndyCar panels. And funnily enough, and I know you're making a funny, maybe it is truly a problem solved by the addition of Gorilla Glue to these panels. We know that the reason that they stopped being used in IndyCar is the specific harmonics and frequencies running through an IndyCar chassis uh, were causing the LED panels to crack, break little electronic bits inside of them that make the little lights go on. Lots of failures due to the different harmonics and vibrations experienced by a crazy high downforce IndyCar compared to sporty cars. I wonder, this being intentional, unlike the poor woman who had to have her hair more or less cut off, my wife, who I figured always knows about the stuff the minute it happens, didn't. I had to tell her about this today. We had a good little chuckle. Um, I think, truly, Lance, the application of a poop ton of Gorilla Glue to the back of uh, the proverbial backside of the LED panels, the electronics bits that are all soldered together and whatever together into circuit board, I think that might be the thing that actually keeps them alive. All right. Uh, again, Ed, you sent in almost, what did you send in? Uh, among all the words here, your two questions account for 
one-tenth of the entire show. So sorry, brother. I don't have time for that right now. Uh, Ross Porter, you got one about street businesses against street races. Send that in again if you want me to get it. Um, I'll close on this one. And it's just because it's somewhat timely. Uh, I'll be putting this up tonight. Tomorrow there is a Race for Equality and Change announcement um, coming. Uh, I've already written that story in advance, so obviously can't talk about it right now under embargo. But uh, Patrick Gaffney closed the show by saying, Marshall, hope all is well with you and your wife. What are the odds of a second diversity car happening in this year uh, or future years? I ask because while I uh, love they are doing this, I would hate for this to become the only way for a woman or a person of color to get a ride at Indy. Do you think the drive for diversity program has room to expand in the future? And are there any plans to expand it in the future? Uh, in informal conversation, I shouldn't say informal. I mean, I think it was on the record, but it's just more kind of BSing a little bit with Bud Denker, uh, who's one of the key leaders of all this. I do know that they don't, intend for it to just be like one car and one thing and we're going to keep it small Uh, i am aware that they do have a desire to grow and i would not be shocked if we see next year that there are two uh force indy road to indy entries whether that's two usf 2000 cars or adding a indy pro 2000 so they're now in the first step of the three-tiered ladder and the second uh, I have to believe it's meant to grow. On the women side, women racers side, speaking with our friend Beth Peretta, she has absolute goal of Peretta Autosport becoming a full-time entrant. I cannot foresee Beth having anything other than a woman driving for her. Bigger point, though, Patrick, that you're raising is, hey, these are great, great, period. No qualifications, just great programs. But what do we do? Is this just something that came to life in 2021? Beth's Peretta Autosport, with the help of Roger Penske and the Race for Equality and Change, comes to life and just becomes what it becomes, and that kind of stream of growth and promotion starts and ends with Pareto Autosport uh, or their other initiatives to bring more women into the sport, whether team ownership, driving, engineering, mechanic, managerial, etc. I don't know, but I would hope IndyCars fans, male, female, child, senior i don't care i would hope that all fans apply a pretty constant measure of pressure or expression of expectations to the series to roger to bud to everyone not to say boo you're not doing enough we don't like you but hey this is a great start keep going keep pushing that call that I had with Willie talking about what's going to be announced tomorrow or the positive things coming tomorrow, I should say. You know, I said, what do you think? And he said, it's 30 years since I qualified for the Indy 500. You know, I'm glad. Sure, of course I'm glad 
that there's something positive happening 30 years later, but I'm not interested in baby steps. You know, uh, you don't get into the sport to take baby steps. You don't get into the sport to walk. You get in it to run. And 30 years is a long time to go from what it was like back then to what feels like a baby step now. Glad it's happening. Thankful it's happening. Man, we can't <laughs> we can't go at the slow rate that we have if we do want to make a change. So step on the throttle. Mash the throttle and let's go. So I would hope that for those who care, have an interest or otherwise, let IndyCar know, hey, this is awesome. Glad you're doing it. Glad you've started doing it. What else are you doing? How many cars? How many levels of the road to Indy? Could there be a Force Indy IndyCar team in the future? How's it going to happen? Where are the business leaders to make that happen? Could there be... Name another woman that wants to own an IndyCar team. Last name, Autosport, Motorsport. Drivers, all the crew members and positions that I mentioned. What is it? It can't just be one thing. We're going to have team at single entry at the bottom rung of the road to Indy and then an Indy 500 entry this year. What else? Because... It's a great start, but man, if we really do want to be more inclusive, make active steps to be more inclusive, uh, tell us about the next steps to get there. And so, again, I hope for those of you who share in my interest in just a more inclusive, right? Hey, if you want to be here, cool. Let us figure out a way to help you. Uh, Then it's on you to succeed, right? We're not handing out trophies to everybody, but hey, if you want to be here and there is an absence, and we're trying to fill that void. Awesome. We want to be agents of facilitation. But once you get here, hey, uh, you sink or swim, that's on you. But if you want to be here, I want to give you that platform, I think it's awesome. Just want to know, like you, Patrick, what's next? What's next? Where do we go? What's the roadmap? Uh, I'm hoping to do some interviews here very shortly maybe get some answers about that so all right i am marshall pruitt this is our marshall pruitt podcast brought to you by cooper tires the justice brothers and torontomotorsports.com oh boy it's been an episode we're just doing one this week really do appreciate you and uh i hope this didn't suck too much and i will have a little interview with a guy by the name of marcus erickson coming here in a day or two other than that i will speak to you next week